Hey folks, it's Jed Wolpaw here with just a quick message. We have switched over to a new platform, and you may start hearing some ads along with the episodes. This is really a way that we can continue to pay the growing cost of the services we need to keep the podcast coming to you without having to charge listeners. So we really want to keep the content free, and so we're going to start introducing some ads, and so if you hear them, you'll know what's going on. All right, thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am really excited because we have a fantastic show for you today. I think it's going to be super useful and really uh, give us some information about some new technologies that you're going to be seeing and that are going to really play a role. And this is going to give you information you need to be able to handle that well in your practice. We are going to talk about non-transvenous ICDs and pacemakers. So really interesting stuff. So I have three guests with me today, which is also fun because it's always fun to have some more people. And uh, they're really uh, experts on this. They've got an article coming out about this. And so I think they're going to be really useful. I've got with me, first of all, Dr. Mike Essendo, who is a cardiothoracic anesthesiology attending at Ohio State. He's a full professor of cardiovascular anesthesiology. He's also the assistant dean of graduate medical education there. And he is uh, involved very, uh, very much both in clinically in this, and he's also an advisor for Boston Scientific and for S4 Medical. Now, we do want to disclose those up front because obviously we'll be talking about some devices um, that those companies are involved in, but obviously we're not advertising them, and he's actually going to be just doing some of the introduction. It's his fellows, who I'll introduce in a minute, who are going to be talking about the devices. So we also have a couple of fantastic fellows from Ohio State, and I should actually say the Ohio State University um, with us as well. So we have Dr. Uh, Joseph Cody and Dr. Thomas Grawl, um, and they go by Joe and Tommy. And as I said, they're cardiothoracic anesthesiology fellows at the Ohio State University. They don't have any disclosure. So gentlemen, it is really a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jed. Thank, Thank you. you. So I want to start, um, Mike, with you. Um, and if you could just kind of give us an introduction uh, why did this come up? How did you guys decide to write a review on this? And why do you think it's important for folks to know about? All right. Uh, so um, I'll start off by saying thank you for, you know, uh, inviting us. This is, um, it's an honor. It's a great opportunity for us to share some of the work that we're doing at High State. Uh, so I'll say this, I'll preface by saying, you know, cardiac rhythm management has advanced over the years. Um, we've stayed in the transvenous space uh, for a long time, but transvenous leads come with a lot of complications. And um, the Society of Cardiac and uh, Cardiovascular Anesthesiologists uh, basically started this initiative where they wanted a few of us um, to create like a video. We, we did like a webinar and recorded it and put it on the uh, the SCA website to share with other centers on these newer technologies. Um, when we did this uh, about two months ago, it focused 
predominantly on the SICD, which is just one of the non-transvenous uh, devices. And after we did that video, um, we've, we received a lot of uh, emails from, you know, uh, physicians around the globe just saying how useful it's been for them to learn from what we shared. But I discussed it with, you know, my great fellows and they felt that I limited it to just one device. Uh, they felt that, you know, the SICD is just one device. The other device is like the Microt, the, you know, the NanoStim, just which we will go through all these devices in detail. And they were like, how do people know the functionalities of these devices? And how do they know how to manage it perioperatively? And and when as we kept talking, we realized that you know the 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 latest document from the ASA uh, didn't spend much time on these novel devices. And um, I must you know uh, disclose that I I did help with that document you know uh, a little bit uh, by reviewing the final document and make, making some edits. But the SCA, oh, sorry, the ASA's approach is the, most of these devices, uh, like the the, um, the literature they use to create these documents have to be evidence-based and have to be you know, vetted and the devices have to be trialed and tested. However, the way the EP space uh, evolves rapidly, there's no way for us you know, anesthesiologists to have any quote unquote, evidence-based data guiding the management of these devices. So my fellows pushed me and, um, and uh, we basically communicated with the Journal of Cardiothoracic and Vascular Anesthesiologists. And we uh, assembled a group of physicians from, you know, reputable centers with a, a lot of clinical experience um, on these non-transvenous uh, uh, devices. So it was a Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Hargrave, Dr. Cronin from UCSD, uh, Dr. Dahlia from MGH, Dr. Strackenbacher from MGH, and Dr. Augustides from Penn. And we collaborated to, we used like the modified Delphi methodology to basically share what experiences we have from all these high volume centers um, and then share how we've been managing these devices. And um, I would say it was very refreshing when we collaborated, you know, and then came up with this document. Um, it took a lot of work. Um, the industry supported us a lot. Um, Medtronic, Boston, all of them gave us um, images to include in this article. And I think it's a very comprehensive article. It's uh, the only one out there uh, that would help guide anesthesiologists to manage patients with these uh, novel devices. So um, this is you know, how we came up with this um, review article. That's great. And uh, I'm thrilled that you guys did it. I love uh, that it's going to have images. I think that'll be super helpful for people. Um, we will put a link to the abstract in the show notes. Uh, the article itself, I think, is not yet out. So we can't actually put that in there, but um, it will be out fairly soon. And so uh, at that point, people will be able to look it up um, and, and they'll have the abstract to go by until then. So uh, thank you to you, your co-authors, um, for putting this together. Um, so Tommy, let me turn to you. Um, give us a little bit. I think even though listeners will know that we did um, a while back, we did a, a full episode on um, pacemakers and AICDs um, with one of our then um, EP fellows here at Hopkins. But uh, I think it would still be useful to do a little review of what the current technology is um, so that people can remember that or there may be folks who, who don't know. Um, so we'll, let's do a little bit of an overview. Take us through that. Um, what are pacemakers for? Uh, maybe let's start there. What, what, what are they for? Why do people have pacemakers? So 
the basics really is a pacemaker does two things. It's going to sense that the voltage sense the voltage produced by the heart, and then it's going to pace the heart if it's programmed to do so. Um, and really, for the most part, except for a few exceptions, a pacemaker is going to be treating bradycardia, whereas an ICD, short for uh, internal cardioverter defibrillator, is going to be treating uh, tachyarrhythmias. Okay, great. So we've got pacemakers, we've got ICDs, and then we've got devices that do both, right? Um, Okay, so what are the basic components of a traditional pacemaker and how is it implanted? Sure, so a traditional pacemaker is what a lot of people would also call a transvenous pacemaker because it has two parts. It has a generator and that sits in the subcutaneous tissue on the chest, usually on the left side. You can usually see it or feel it. And then it has the the wire leads, and those are wired from the generator transvenously through the subclavian SVC and then into the heart. Um, and those are placed by the cardiologist in the in the uh, EP lab. And just out of curiosity, and, and folks, you know, there may be even people who have done this, have done the anesthesia for these, and don't know the actual ins and outs. Are how are those leads actually? placed? How do they get them into the, uh, the actual vessels? So they, it's the same as you would do for like a central line. You basically get a venous stick and then you do a, a modified Seldinger and eventually they dilate up and they'll, they'll thread the wire through and under fluoro, they guide it to the appropriate spot, whether it's the RA, the RV or the, the coronary sinus. Great. Okay. And this is happening on the venous side. Correct. All venous side. All right. And so that's how it's implanted. And then, uh, you know, obviously there must be some downsides to this, right? Or else we, nobody would be out there trying to come up with non-transvenous um, approaches. So what are some downsides to the way it's currently done? Yeah, you're right. There actually are a lot of downsides. So you've got, I like to break them down to immediate and long-term. Immediate, uh, as with any vascular procedure, you can have a pneumothorax, vascular injury. Um, you can the leads be, can become dislodged and you can also perforate the heart and, and get a tamponade. Um, and then the long-term complications uh, can be pretty nasty. You can get uh, central uh, venous obstruction, such as SVC syndrome. You can get uh, tricuspid valve injury from the leads. The leads can become fractured or damaged. You can get uh, infection in the pocket or endocarditis. And anyone that's done a lead extraction knows how nasty those can be. In fact, just this week, we had a lead extraction where uh, the RV was perforated and patient coded and put on, put on ECMO and all that. So, so definitely a lot of uh, complications that can happen with these. And with over 200,000 of them being placed in the U.S. every year, it, it can really add up. Yeah. And clearly this must not be, you know, a kind of once in a blue moon thing or else, again, there wouldn't be the incentive for these companies to be developing new ones. So do we have any feel for, you know, how common some complication is? I mean, how, you know, if you look at, I don't know, you know, a, a, a thousand people who get a pacemaker, um, we don't need to go into sort of every possible complication, but just how how common is it to get some sort of complication? I think uh, one of the articles I looked at major complication rate was eight point. Eight percent. Wow. So it definitely a significant amount can can experience major complications. Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers of of all the individual things, but 
Yeah, no, that's fine. And that's striking. I mean, that's a, that's a high rate of a major complication, right? We're not talking about, you know, puritis over the pocket. We're talking about major mm-hmm. complications, and that's not insignificant. So that makes sense that there's a need for more. Let's back up a bit and just do a little bit of review again, because pacemakers have their own kind of terminology and people may or may not be familiar. So I think it's worth reviewing. Can you talk about you know, let's say you got a patient coming in, you know, they've got a pacemaker. How do you know what mode it's in? If they come in and they say, oh, I'm in, you know, DDD or, you know, VVO, how do you know what those letters mean? Sure. So most patients, if they're established in your system, you should be able to pull up their interrogation reports, which they usually have every few months done by the cardiology people. And that report can give you a lot of valuable information. It'll tell you what mode they're in, how often they're pacer dependent. If they have an ICD, it'll tell you if there's been shocks delivered. So those can be really useful. Um, But if you don't have those, you can always call one of the reps and they can come interrogate it. And it only takes a couple minutes really for them to be able to do that with their machine. Um, As far as the letters go, um, or sorry, as the type of pacemakers go, um, there's really three. We've got a single chamber pacemaker And that's where the lead either goes in the RA or the RV. And then uh, we've got a dual chamber pacemaker. That's with two leads in the RA and the RV. And then the last type is a biventricular pacemaker. And this is something you might have heard of as cardiac resynchronization therapy. And this is basically a patient, usually the indication is someone with a reduced EF and a a prolonged QRS. So if you see someone and they have a... uh, a biventricular pacemaker, you can kind of say right away, okay, I know this person probably at least at some point had a reduced EF. Um, And the way that they pace the left ventricle at the same time as the right is they put that lead into the coronary sinus and that paces the left ventricle. So the theory is when you have that synchrony of pacing both ventricles at the same time, it improves your EF. Great. And that makes sense, right? Because of course, that is how the heart works uh, when it's working on its own without a pacemaker. So they're trying that method more accurately uh, mimics the actual baseline function of the heart, right? Correct. Okay. So we've got these three um, types of pacemakers. And then um, I believe that any of them can either be just a pacemaker or can have an associated uh, ICD, right? Exactly. It's something that you'll just have to look either you can see the uh, shocking coil on an X-ray, or when you look at the report. But if you're look, if you're talking about transvenous technology, any of these can either be a standalone pacemaker or a combined ICD and pacemaker. Okay, and is it? I, I've heard people say this, but it may well not be accurate. But people will sometimes say, you know, older people who've had them for a long time are more likely to have a standalone pacemaker, whereas people getting uh, devices implanted more recently, they're more likely to be combined. Is that true or it does it, is it completely patient dependent? Uh, I believe that's true. Yeah. Okay. From what, Sounds good. From what Dr. Essendo is shaking oh, his head over yeah, here. Uh, <laughs> Mike, what do you think? No, I mean, uh, Tommy's right. It's one of those things that it's so variable. And even when you, you know, look at all the, um, the Heart Rhythm Society and, you know, AHA, ACC guidelines, it's not clearly stated. So, I mean, if the patient has no indication for, let's say, defibrillation, um, or if they have an intact AV node, so they use a lot of considerations, and each hospital and each electrophysiologist um, basically implants device very, you know, 
in a very variable way. But if if somebody has you know tachybrady syndrome or six hundred syndrome, and they're going to put right atrial lead in, then they're going to get a an isolated pacemaker and then depend on the AV node to basically take over after they pace in the right atrium and then provide, you know, like um, inherent uh, biventricular pacing. But when some a patient needs right ventricular pacing and it's it's very, it's not, obviously I'm, you know, anesthesiologist, so, but if, if their EF is still marginal at best and they need RV pacing, it just makes sense to put uh, pacer with, you know, defibrillation capabilities in there. Uh, so most of the RV, isolated RV pacers would have defibrillation, you know, uh, capacity. And then also patients with cardiac risk, almost all CRT, cardiac risk synchronization therapy patients, uh, potentially would have defibrillation because the, the criteria for CRT is, you know, LV ejection fraction, the 30, 35% range. And that's also a criteria for high risk in, you know, uh, ventricular tachyarrhythmia. So if you're going to put a CRT device in, it just makes sense to put a CRT D, you know, CRT with defibrillation uh, capability. So, so I think uh, it's still very personalized, uh, but if, if it's an RV CRT, um, the majority of those patients would have, you know, defibrillation. But as Tommy was saying too, it just makes sense to just pay attention to the x-ray because if the coil is there, then it has defibrillation and not to just assume that just because yeah. a patient has, you know, by V pacing, they have defibrillation. Yep, totally. That sounds great. Thanks for that addition. All right. So, Tommy, let's talk about the um, letters themselves. Uh, so, you know, pacemakers have these, these what to someone who doesn't know would sound like just a complete gibberish code, right? But which actually yeah. is a fairly straightforward um, descriptor of what they do. So tell us about that. Sure. And I think this is something that once you learn it, it's actually pretty straightforward. But it, you have definitely have to review it a few times to kind of get it in your head and get it straight. But essentially, the, the coding letters are going to tell you what mode the pacemaker is in. And there's actually five letters, but really only the first three are the most important, really, that you need to concentrate on. And so I think the easiest way to remember the first letter is that this is a pacemaker. So the first letter is going to tell you what's being paced. And that could either be A for atrium, V for ventricle, D for dual, or O for no pacing. So again, the first letter is going to tell you uh, what is it, what is being paced. Um, the second letter is what chambers are being sensed. And it's the same as the first letter. It could either be atrium, ventricle, both, or none. And then the third letter is the response that the pacemaker is going to have to what it's sensing. Um, so this can either be O for no response, T for triggered. And triggered means that the pacemaker is being triggered to pace. And then I would be inhibit. And that means that the pacemaker is going to be inhibited. So, for example, if the pacemaker is, let's say, AAI at 70, that means it's going to pace the atrium, it's going to sense the atrium, and if the rate of the native heart goes above 70, then it will inhibit the pacemaker and it will let the heart do its own pacing. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think that's that's great. So let's use... I don't know, a couple of, of maybe common ones. So sure. you gave the example of AAI, right? So you're uh, pacing the atrium, you're sensing the atrium. And if you feel, if you have your own, if the inherent uh, or the atrium itself um, beats, then the um, 
then obviously you wouldn't want the pacemaker to also do it. So it will inhibit itself. So that makes a lot of sense. What about, you know, another common one people might see is DDD, right? So just maybe tell us a brief sure. description of what that is. So DDD is probably one of the most common uh, configurations that you'll see. And it's that's always going to be for either a, um, a dual chamber pacemaker or a, a CRT pacemaker because uh, it involves sensing it. You basically, you're going to pace both the atria and the ventricles. You're going to sense them. And then the response can either be inhibiting the pacemaker or triggering. So I think like a good example is let's say a person has third degree heart block. Um, they might be in DDD and you take them to the operating room. This is when this really becomes applicable to us because if the, basically if there's electric cautery that's too close to the device, the pacemaker is going to think that cautery is the heart beating at a fast rate. And then it's going to inhibit the pacemaker because the person has third degree heart block. The, there's not going to be any cardiac activity, any cardiac output because the person has third degree heart block. So this is an example, a really good example of when a pacemaker needs to be changed to a different mode. If you're expecting there to be interference, for example, say like a chest surgery, because your cautery will be very close to, to the uh, pacemaker. Right. Okay. So that's super helpful and a great example of why this stuff really matters, because obviously if we're not careful in the operating room uh, and a patient is pacemaker dependent, as you said, uh, we could end up with a patient who is in asystole, um, which is obviously not a good thing. All right. So, and then, you know, I think commonly people can, where these can get a little confusing, these letters is, you know, that third letter um, that is the response to sensing, if that's O, it doesn't mean the pacemaker isn't going to pace. It means it's not going to bother with a response to its sensing. So, for example, VOO is a pacemaker that is pacing the ventricle, but it's not sensing. And since it's not sensing, it's not responding to the sensing. And so you're just asynchronously pacing. So let's talk about that. What is asynchronous mode and uh, how does that work? So asynchronous mode would be a mode where um, like you said, the third letter is going to be O, so it's not sensing and it's not inhibiting the pacemaker. So I don't want to get too political, but just think of your your least favorite politician who, I don't know, maybe likes to fly off to the Caribbean or something, but they have no sense and no inhibition. And that's the same mode that this pacemaker is in, no sense, no inhibition. And it, it doesn't really care what the heart's doing. It's just going to keep pacing along at the same rate over and over again. And this is great for a, a pacemaker-dependent person when you're going to the OR and expecting interference. But the problem is if it doesn't care what the heart's doing, so if the native heart rate starts to go above what you're pacing at, then you're at risk for an R on T phenomenon, which, as we know, oftentimes results in VTAC or VFib, which no one likes to deal with. Right. Not a good thing. So just to make sure people understand that. So what you're saying is that if let's just say you're in VOO at, I don't know, 60 for the sake of argument. All right. So your pacemaker is pacing at a rate of 60. If you're and if your heart rate is below that, then it's actually you're not going to have a heart rate because the pacemaker itself is going to be inhibiting your own heart from beating. But if your heart rate goes above 60, then you're going to start having your own beats. And if the pacemaker fires, 
In other words, it's our, it's our wave, which is it's firing. If that happens right on top of your native T wave, that's the R on T phenomenon that you mentioned, that can cause the heart to essentially devolve into V-fib, right? Correct. I like to think of the, the two O's in DOO and BOO as like 007 because he has a license to kill. So you leave that, you leave a patient in that mode after the surgery, that's like a license to kill them. So it's really important if you get a pacemaker change to DOO, BOO, you need to get a change back at the end of the case. And would you say that it's probably not a good idea to set someone in an asynchronous mode at a rate that's low-ish, like I said, 60? Is that, you know, that tends to probably be less safe. Would you set them at a little, you'd, you'd ask for them to be set at a little bit of a higher rate? Yeah, definitely. I think, and especially when you're thinking of the, the increased cardiac demand when someone's undergoing surgery, you want them to be at a little bit of a, a higher rate. Great. That makes sense to me. And as you said, you want them in this asynchronous mode so that the electric cautery can't stop the pacemaker, but you don't want to leave them in it after they're out of the OR because it's not necessary anymore since they're not going to have electric cautery happening to them outside the OR. And you are, as long as you're in this asynchronous mode, you're at risk for um, the potential complication of an R on T. So, all right. And then, you know, a lot of people are going to say, uh, can't I just use a magnet, right? Won't, won't putting a magnet just put me in asynchronous mode. Will it? Can I just use a magnet for this? It, so it's important to make the distinction if you have a pacemaker or if you have a combined pacemaker ICD. If you just have a pacemaker only, a magnet generally should put the patient into asynchronous mode. Um, but if you have an ICD and pacemaker, you will not change the pacemaker settings. You will only disable the ICD from shocking the patient. So it's important to keep that distinction in mind. Um, generally, I think it's, if you have the time, it's best to have someone come interrogate the pacemaker and, and change it just to be safer because you run into the issues of the magnet falling off. Uh, if the patient's positioned laterally, for example, then you might have to worry about a pressure injury from the magnet. So, um, in general, I like to try to recommend that you at least get it interrogated and changed if need need be. But uh, I think a magnet definitely can be helpful, for example, like in an emergency in the middle of the night. Yeah. And, you know, we always teach our residents, and, and I would imagine you guys would agree, that even if you know it's only a pacemaker, you shouldn't just assume, unless you, you know, if it's obviously, as you said, if it's an emergency, you don't have time. Okay, you're going to do the best you can. But if you've got the time to get interrogated, get interrogated because you never know, right? There might be some, uh, you know, a different, they might have some esoteric, you know, type of pacemaker that actually doesn't do what you think it's going to do in response to a magnet. So it's safer to just be sure. Sure. Hang in there. We'll be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. All right. So great. I think this was a really useful. And I just want to. We, we that was focused. I think appropriately on pacemakers. And so just briefly in terms of ICDs, you said that a combination pacemaker AICD. One important piece is that it will do something different in response to a magnet, which, as you said, is that it's going to stop the anti-tachytherapy shocks, but it won't do anything to the pacemaker. But also, I think, important to realize that, you know, you do need to deal with the anti-tachytherapy if you're concerned about electrocautery in the OR, right? Because you, even if someone's not pacemaker dependent, someone with an ICD has another potential complication from electrocautery, right? Correct. And what, what, what do we worry about with them? So you're worried about inappropriate shocks. Um, so even one shock really could, can cause damage to the myocardium. So it's something you really want to try to avoid. Um, and, that, and that's basically the main, the main concern from that standpoint. Right. right. So the electrocautery can be read by the ICD as VTAC, and therefore it right. can shock thinking it's treating VTAC, right? Yes, Okay, so that would be why you would want the anti-tachytherapy function disabled during an OR visit. And then briefly, you know, people will hear things like it depends on where the surgery is. So what are the guide? What what do you kind of teach residents when they when they're working with you? Or what are you guys taught around? You know, is it below the umbilicus? Does that is that the cutoff? When do we have to deal with um, getting the anti-tachytherapy turned off as opposed to not worrying about it? I think most people would go with below the umbilicus, but it's, there's not a lot of clear, super clear answers. Um, and it, it can also depend on a lot of things like if you're using monopolar or bipolar cautery. Um, but in general, I think most people here are going by below the umbilicus. Um, but if you're really concerned, it's probably better to be safe than sorry. And, that, and to just reprogram it to, to asynchronous if you're, if you're super worried. Great. So m- people will hear if it's above the umbilicus, you do need it to get it reprogrammed. If it's below the umbilicus, maybe not. But I agree with you. If you're not sure if it's right at the umbilicus, right, I think just be safe um, and get it reprogrammed. And then we will tend to, for people who have an ICD uh, and are getting it disabled for surgery, we will tend to have that done as late as possible. So usually in pre-op as opposed to like the night before. And then we will keep pads on them, meaning the Zoll pads um, through the period of time when their ICD is off so that if they were to have an event, we would be able to very quickly shock them externally. Do you guys do the same thing? For the most part, we, we do. Yeah. And I think Dr. Essen, Dr. Essendo had something. Yeah. 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 So 
that's an excellent point. Like historically, we've done the below the umbilicus, above the umbilicus for the transvenous systems because the sensing of these transvenous leads are intracardiac. So they are quite resistant to, you know, EMI below the umbilicus. And, um, you know, Dr. Cody would bring this up um, later on when we talk about SICDs. Uh, the newer SICD is the only device that really senses the entire left hemithorax. And we'll get to that. So that, even though it's not addressed in our literature, I think it changes um, the impact of, you know, electromagnetic interference. Because if you're sensing the entire left hemithorax versus having a bipolar lead that is sitting just in the right ventricle, then EMI sensitivity, I think, is really high. And the SICD also shocks you at a higher energy level. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that coming up. But I just want people to always think about it that, the ICD below umbilicus and above should be, they, they should consider which type of um, ICD it is because yeah. it, 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 can, it can be quite dangerous. Great point. Thank you. And uh, one of the, yet another reason why this um, episode is going to be really important because with this new technology, we need to be thinking about this in a different way. So thank you, Mike, for bringing that up. All right. So Tommy, that was a great overview and I think um, a great review for people. So Joe, let's turn to you now to talk about uh, some of these pacing technologies that are now coming uh, out to potentially replace or at least have as an option other than transvenous technology. So um, tell us about what's out there. So um, for the uh, leadless uh, pacemakers in the uh, United States, there are two currently that are on the market there's the Micra VR uh, that was approved in 2016, and the Micra uh, AV, which was just approved in uh, 2020. Um, and there are a few others that are, you'll see in the uh, literature that may be on the market, but they are not out yet. Um, I'll uh, mention them in passing, but not cover them too in depth, just because they're not on the market yet. But there's the uh, the uh, the uh, NanoSim and the uh, Empower. So those are two others, but. Uh, for today, just because it's the one that's approved, I wanted to focus more on the micro. Yeah, um, great. So tell us, first of all, just tell me what the difference is between VR and AV, and then tell me what it, what is this micro VR AV? So for the uh, VR, th th that was sort of the first uh, generation of the micro, and um, it is a small device. It looks like a capsule. It's about the size of your fingertip. It is uh, implanted in the RV um, by the, um, EP cardiologist, uh, it's the, um, EP cardiologist will access a, uh, femoral vein and use a, a transcatheter sister, uh, um, uh, system to place it into the RV. And it's this small device that's permanently, um, attached to the RV. Um, it can set, uh, sense and pace the uh, RV and that's its main feature. Um, the, population it was uh, targeting was uh, patients with uh, atrial fibrillation was the main because in those patients you already lose AV synchrony so they're sort of the perfect patient to just pace the RV. Um, the micro AV had the addition of being able to sense what the uh, right uh, atrium is is doing uh, interestingly with the standard transvenous pace uh, pacers, there's a uh, there's an atrial lead and a ventricular lead, and it will uh, say uh, it, and it can uh, sense it that way. With the micro uh, AV, there's no uh, atrial lead, so it has an accelerometer that can sense the right atrium uh, contracting, 
and that's how it maintains AV, uh, AV uh, synchrony. So um, the perfect example would, would, would be a patient in a third degree heart block whose uh, atrium will still contract, but it doesn't make it down the uh, AV node. And so the micro uh, AV can, can sense that and, uh, and keep things in, in sync between the atrium and the ventricle. Uh, that is really cool. Uh, so to make sure I understand you, this thing is now, first of all, they're going in through the venous system. And then so from the inside of the heart, they're kind of burrowing this thing into the myocardium. Is that right? Yeah. So um, the device has these 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 tines and they uh, go um, into the heart. And there is a special uh, system that is that is made part of this full catheter and it, these these tines actually uh, attach and they burrow into the heart and uh, with time they're actually the, the device itself becomes um, uh, um, endothelialized uh, to the inside of the RV. Very cool. So there's actually no device exposed to uh, to the blood once it's right. fully exactly, and it's completely contained. There there are no wires. Um, it's a self-contained system with a, um, a uh, bipolar uh, lead and, and a battery, and it's all contained. And, um, yeah, there's, there's no pacer pocket. There's no generator site. There are no transvenous leads. It's all just this one small uh, unit. Uh, looks like a capsule. Okay, very cool. And the way it's working, at least the AV version, you said is that it actually can sense the change in motion or the movement of the atria, and or the atrium and say okay the because i can sense this motion i now know the atrium just beat and so you know in the absence of a ventricular beat to follow i will provide that ventricular beat exactly okay very cool now uh the first thing that comes to my mind is if it's buried in the heart it obviously can't come out it can't be accessed right it's going to be as you said epithelialized it's going to be buried in the heart muscle how do you change the battery so um, that's, a, that's a great question. So uh, it actually, it, it can come out. That's uh, one choice. There have been, there was a uh, um, case series actually done where they did uh, successfully retrieve these, uh, these uh, micros. Um, or the alternative is if the cardiology, if the, uh, if the uh, cardiologist thinks it's safer, it can just be turned off and it can stay in, in the heart and a second one can be placed. So and okay. the battery life's pretty good. So it's about twelve uh, years or so for the battery life. So and that, okay. of course, depends on the pacing uh, requirements of the patient and that sort of thing. But. Okay. Now, uh, how big is it? Like, give me an example. Are we talking the size of a dime, a quarter? What are we talking about? Um, it's in. It's about the size of a nickel, um, and it's zero point eight cc's. Uh, is and I forget how many grams. It's it's pretty small. I, I mean, if you take a look at the, the at a uh, chest X ray, it, it actually looks like there's like a small bullet in the RV. So, um, yeah. Okay. So great. So you they, you're going to place this thing, and I'm actually amazed you can retrieve it, given that it's going to be buried in the heart. But I'm sure it's got some built in mechanism for trying to kind of snag it. Um, and I I suppose you don't have to worry too much about bleeding on the inside of the RV since it's <laughs> the blood is only going to be joining the rest of the blood there. Um, so the case series you mentioned, they did remove them and it was safe to do that. 
Yes. Okay. So we talked, uh, Tommy went over for us some of the potential complications of uh, the current transvenous devices. Uh, what are the potential complications? How does this compare to that? I would say from the, so the, it's, it's, a, it's a very safe device. Um, immediate complications, I would say that the most um, uh, uh, concerning would be uh, a perforation of the RV or, um, or a dislodgement of the device. So it could, uh, it could um, um, embolize into the, uh, into the uh, pulmonary uh, system. So um, those were uh, reported in the initial studies, uh, but they are rare. Um, the most common uh, complication is, um, is, um, is um, problems at the, um, at the uh, venous uh, access site. So, um, pseudo um, aneurysms and uh, bleeding and that kind of thing from where where the large sheath was placed in the in the femoral vein. So, um, with regard to um, to um, endocarditis and that sort of thing, which we see fairly frequently, uh, more than we certainly want to with the uh, transvenous leads, um, it really they haven't seen it with these uh, micro. Uh, Devices. There have been cases of people with micros that developed uh, prosthetic valve endocarditis, but the device itself was believed not to be infected. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a huge advantage of this, right, is that it's, sel- it's so self-contained that unless it goes in with uh, an infection, it's probably very unlikely. And then once it's epithelialized, you'd think that even if someone got bacteremic, it would be very unlikely to be able to, to lodge on this device, right? Yeah, and um, they actually studied, um, it was just a case series of, of uh, patients who had um, endocarditis with a uh, transvenous system, and they uh, took out the um, transvenous uh, system, and, and, and a uh, leadless pacer was placed in, in place of the transvenous uh, system, and they did not get uh, recurrence of their uh, endocarditis. So okay. it does seem to show a protective benefit with safety there. Okay. Now, does this require a larger insertion uh, sheath than a traditional transvenous pacemaker? Yes. I, I don't know the French, but it's a pretty decent size sheath. Yeah. Okay. So then maybe there that's would would lead to what you mentioned about insertion site complications as, you know, maybe like the most, the most common form of complication. Um, and then what about, um, you know, is there any issues around disrupting the native cardiac conduction fibers when you're, when you're implanting this into the wall? Is there, you know, are arrhythmias an issue? I mean, not, not that I've seen other than what, what you would expect when you're tickling the uh, RV. Uh, I think it would be uh, similar to if you're, um, you know, uh, doing a uh, central line in your in your uh, guide wire, it uh, tickles the uh, RV or your floating uh, swan gans catheter. So there's nothing I've seen um, other than those potential uh, 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 complications with regard to arrhythmia. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I was thinking was, like you said, if, you're, if you've got a, a guide wire that's poking the RV and you get some PVCs or even VTAC, uh, but then, of course, you just pull back your guide wire. In this case, that thing is not coming out right it's going to stay in there but 
I'm guessing that if it caused a high rate of VTAC, uh, it wouldn't, <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about it right now because it would have been approved. So it must be, it must yeah. be that maybe during insertion, you can get some irritation, but that once it's there on its own, maybe it's small enough um, that it's not really causing these issues. Yeah. Okay. So uh, great. So it's placed through a fairly large sheath. It's uh, burrowed into the RV. It stays there. It's possible to retrieve, though um, it doesn't have to be. It can also be left there. If someone needs more than 12 years of uh, pacing, then um, you can, uh, as you said, place a new one. Uh, now, is there any thought, and, and maybe we'll turn to this when we kind of think about the future, but when I think about my my Apple Watch, you know, I, I don't have to plug anything into it to recharge it, right? I just have to have it kind of up against this charger. Is there any thought in the future to whether you could recharge this thing by putting essentially some sort of recharger up against the patient's chest? Or is that kind of, are we talking about a little too far in the future? I, I think it's a great idea. I haven't heard about that. I don't know if you've heard um, Mike or Tommy, if you've heard anything about that. No, but no one has kind of, you know, rhythm management advances. I bet you somebody's working on it, you know, uh, yeah. currently. I know even for LVAT, um, because of the risk of driveline infections and the need to externally power it, uh, there are companies, you know, working to advance it where you don't have to have an energy source come out of the skin. So right. there, there is a potential that, you know, I mean, it's just amazing how you can have something that little will give you 12 plus years of pacing, which That's right. is remarkable. So, yes. Yeah. I'm thinking, why are my car fobs not giving me 12 <laughs> years, right? That's what I want to know. That's right. Um, all right. So, so Joe, um, great. Anything else? I want to also ask you about the wireless CRT um, technology. But before we move to that, anything else you think we didn't cover about the, um, the uh, Micra that we should go over? Yeah. I, I think for these uh, patients um, coming to the to the uh, operating room, you have to take them very seriously. Um, I think as Tommy had discussed with the uh, transvenous uh, pacers, uh, I was sort of taught in training that, oh, I don't think we're gonna have any trouble with the interference from uh, electric cautery. If we do have a magnet in the room, we'll put it on. Well, with these uh, micros, there's no response to the magnet. Um, so you can put a magnet on the patient's chest, it's not gonna do anything. So I think you have to really plan preoperatively um, uh, the management of this uh, pacemaker. And I think the uh, ASA guidelines can be adapted for this, even though they don't specifically uh, mention it. Um, so uh, I don't know if we have time to go through some of the things I think of when I uh, see these patients. Yeah, please. Let's do it. I think that's that's really important. So, um you know, if I see um, a patient with a micro, um, I question, um, I assume they're pacemaker dependent because they have a pacemaker, uh, but I do make sure. And if they uh, are dependent, I ask more questions. If they're not, I'm done and I take them to OR. Um, and if they are, uh, if they are, uh, are uh, dependent, I think things to consider are the uh, surgical site, we do suspect that if it's below the um, umbilicus, you don't need to do anything. Um, you keep it how it's programmed and you shouldn't have any uh, interference. Um, and the second thing is the type of the, of the electric cautery. So if they're gonna use a monopolar electric cautery and it's above the umbilicus and the patient is dependent on the pacer, 
it's probably as safest to um, change it to an asynchronous mode as 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 we had uh, discussed. So for for the micro, that would be BOO, uh, which means it will uh, paste the ventricle, but it doesn't it doesn't sense or or inhibit. And so you can obviously. Uh still reprogram these even though they are not they don't have a pocket with a generator but you can use your they must hook up somehow with like radio frequency or bluetooth or yeah, something yeah it, it's actually the same programmers that is for the uh trans venus it's just a different uh, application set yes okay so it's there's like a wand and the some someone either from the vendor or the uh, ep staff will come and they'll place over this this wand and programmer and they can change the settings that are um, appropriate for, for the patient. Okay, great. So that's key is that a magnet won't work. That's a real big difference. What else, when you think anything else, when you think about kind of how to handle these intraoperatively um, that's different than, than a traditional transvenous? Um, I, I would be cautious if the patient um, just had it placed and the guideline is within the Three months or so, if you're going to float a swan or um, if you're in the CT um, surgery um, realm and and they're going to get an RVAD, a Protect Duo, or an Impella RP, um, be very careful because you could knock off the uh, Micra and it could um, embolize. So um, if it's a newer device, that's something to be cautious of. And I would even be, be concerned with a uh, guide wire from a central line. Yeah. Okay. So you got to be really careful. That's a good point. Um, what about um, anticoagulation? Does do these require anticoagulation when they're placed? Not to my knowledge. It's, yeah. No. Okay. So that's not an issue. Um, and then when are there any indications? Is there anything that you would need a pacemaker for, but that this would not work for? In other words, is there are there indications that you'd say, oh yeah, no, you still need a transvenous pacemaker for this issue? Yeah. I would say for somebody with a uh, sinus node uh, uh, problem, so say their sinus node just doesn't work and their uh, AV node is still uh, transmitting, it would probably be better for them to have a uh, dual chamber uh, pacemaker. Um, Because if you were to put in a uh, micro uh, pacer, you would paste the RV, but you would lose the uh, atrium. So uh, I would say for... Uh, a patient whose uh, SA node uh, doesn't work, I this would not be the ideal pacemaker. It, it would work, it would keep them uh, alive, but it wouldn't give them the advantage of the AV uh, synchrony. Um, okay. Yeah, so that would that's probably the biggest one. And just to kind of state the uh, obvious, but um, it's not in uh, ICD. So if they need uh, ICD uh, therapy, it's not going to do that. So if you have a patient that would benefit from a pacemaker and from an uh, ICD, you'd either have to do a standard transvenous ICD, or you have to combine the micro with a subcutaneous ICD. Um, but it doesn't do that. And if you need uh, CRT therapy, um, it the micro by itself it doesn't provide that that uh, resynchronization uh, therapy. So right. it has. So it's it's a great device, um, but it has some limitations at at this stage in the game. Okay, so the big thing is that it only 
it only paces the ventricle, the right ventricle. So if you want to pace the left side, can't do that. If you want to pace the atrium, can't do that. So you need, uh, it, it has to be for an indication where all you need to do is pace the right ventricle. And then, as you said, it can't uh, do IC, it's not an ICD. Okay, so speaking of ICD, tell me about wireless uh, CRT technology. So, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. When I said, I'm, <laughs> I said, no, speaking of ICD, we're going to get to that in a minute. Not ICD. Tell me, we talked about cardiac resynchronization therapy. Tell me about wireless CRT. So, um, um, uh, uh, CRT uh, therapy is um, typically done with a with a third lead. So, with a standard uh, pacer that's placed by the uh, transvenous route, uh, they will uh, typically place a a um, lead in the right right atrium, a lead in the right ventricle, and they'll do a third lead, typically to the coronary sinus. There are other ways to do this, but the most standard way are those three leads. Um, the trouble is when, when a lead is placed in the coronary sinus, uh, um, I mean, it, it, there are a few problems. Uh, a, it's a third lead. And, uh, as we discussed, you know, these, uh, these, uh, these leads have, uh, complications and, uh, B, they, the CRT therapy, uh, despite being placed, the lead being placed in the coronary sinus appropriately, it doesn't always work. Um, so that's sort of two downsides to uh, the way that, that CRT uh, therapy is being done now. There is a new technology out there called called uh, wireless uh, CRT. And how that works is there is a very small electrode. looks like a pencil tip. I mean, it's real tiny. And it's actually pay, placed into the uh, LV. Um, how, the, uh, how the cardiologists uh, do this is it's actually uh, done in a uh, retrograde uh, fashion where they go through the uh, arterial system. So we've been talking about the venous system for most of, uh, um, of uh, this uh, podcast, but for the, for this, actually, the uh, cardiologist will go on through, through the femoral uh, artery. They'll cross the um, aortic valve, go into the LV and place a small electrode. Um, there's no battery to this. There's nothing. It's just a sensing. It's basically at a uh, receiver. And then it's linked, so subcutaneously, a battery and, a, and an ultrasound uh, transmitter is placed in a, in a uh, subcutaneous pocket. So we're back to a pocket system. And uh, there is a ultrasound uh, transmitter that sends uh, energy through, the, through an acoustic window that powers this lead. Um, and it's triggered by a standard uh, pacemaker or by a micro. Um, it could be either. It's typically, if you take a look at the papers, it's a uh, transvenous pacer, but it, it, it doesn't uh, need to be. It just, it, it detects this pacing spike and then it paces, it's, it sends power to this uh, LV lead and then it paces the uh, LV um, at the same time as the uh, RV. Um, that's, this is kind of different technology. I, I hope I summed it up okay. Yeah, no, it really interesting stuff. So it sounds to me like what, what you're doing is you're going to already have some sort of right-sided pacer. That could be a standard transvenous pacer or it could be a micra, which we just talked about. And then what you're doing uh, is you're putting in a, a little tiny um, electrode into the LV retrograde, as you said, and then you're creating a pocket in the chest, which can do what sounds really neat, which is some basically 
yeah, I mean, it sounds very Star Trek to me, right? But it can like beam <laughs> energy into that little electrode that's in now buried in the LV. Um, and so my, tell me if I'm right here, what it, what that, what that little pocket is going to do, the device that's in the pocket, it's going to sense when the right sided pacer fires and it's going to basically tell the left sided electrode that is, it's associated with, Hey, you should fire too. And therefore, you'll get your RV and LV fire, uh, be, you know, uh, paced at the same time. You're you're exactly right. That's that's perfect. And 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 then uh, by, and it's it's really great because it's shown to be uh, more now. This is still kind of in studies. It's not. It's it's approved here for in um, for in um, for kind of a trial status. It's really not uh, fully uh, approved. Um, but it's shown to be, um, it's promising to be uh, uh, more successful than the, uh, than the uh, CS lead. So. Yeah, so it's inst- instead of being in the coronary sinus and kind of having to you know, hope for the best, you're actually in the LV this way. Exactly. exactly. Okay, very cool. Now, is there anything, Perry, uh, you know, in, the, in the operating room that we need to be aware of when people have this? In other words, they've now got this pocket. We're back to, as you said, having a pocket and a little ultrasound radio frequency, you know, generator there that is there anything unusual, anything we have to be careful of with electrocautery with that, any reprogramming of that side? So we don't think so is the answer that I can give you. Uh, we, we don't really know enough. What, what we said in the paper was by changing the programming of the pacemaker um, to an appropriate uh, pacing mode, the YCRT should follow that and everything should work out uh, okay. Now, uh, that being said, this is a newer device, and we're still sort of uh, sort of uh, learning. So. Okay. I think of this like if I change my iPhone to airplane mode, my Apple Watch will follow and go to airplane mode too, right? So that yes. the- <laughs> Perfect. That's a perfect analogy. That's perfect, Jed. <laughs> awesome. All right. Um, Great. So uh, I want to, since I already jumped ahead, uh, I, I want to get to Tommy and talking about the SICD. But first, Joe, is there anything um, about either the micro or the wireless CRT technology that you think is important to cover that we didn't hit? I think we covered the big points. Okay, great. So, Tommy, let's go back to you and tell me now about um, subcutaneous ICD technology. So we've talked here about wireless pacemakers and wireless uh, CRT technology. How about uh, subcutaneous ICD, which I'm guessing is also wireless? Uh, correct. So it basically is exactly what the name says. It's it's an ICD and it's implanted subcutaneously. So there's nothing in the venous system whatsoever. Um, and these can be really great for, say, younger patients, patients who have infection risk and you don't want to put a permanent device in transvenously, people who are very difficult uh, venous access, like for example, maybe a dialysis patient or patient with SVC syndrome. Uh, I think those are all kind of great examples of when the subcutaneous ICD would be a really nice option. Um, but basically it's, uh, it's basically, uh, composed of two parts. It has the, the generator itself and that's put in the mid axillary line and then, uh, connected to that and then tunneled, Basically, a left parasternal area is where the actual, um, what's the word? Word blank, sorry. The actual um, shocker? Yeah, the actual shocker. <laughs> Very scientific. 
Um, and so it's all subcutaneous, uh, just under the skin, um, except for the actual shocker. They are putting, putting that sort of intramuscularly sometimes as well. Um, with these, you can put a magnet on the, the generator part and it will disable it. So it'll actually beep uh, concordant with the R wave for 60 seconds when you put the magnet on it. And after, the, and after that, it will be uh, um, disabled. The other option, like with all the other things, is that you can just have it reprogrammed to be off. So um, again, you, if you put a magnet on it, you have to worry about the magnet coming off. It's kind of in an awkward location, kind of over by the armpit. You also have to worry about pressure injury as well if, if you're going to put a magnet on that. So when you say, so you put the magnet on, 60 seconds, it'll beep on the R wave. And then as long as the magnet is still on, it's off? or uh, And then if Correct. the magnet comes off, in theory, it is, it's back on? Correct. As soon as the magnet's removed, it, it will uh, come back on. Does it do any beeping when it comes back on or no? No, there's no okay. no beeps when it's Okay, sort of so just uh, when it first when the magnet first goes on. Okay, so you can either put the magnet on, but then, as you said, it, you got to really be careful to keep it on if that's your intention, or you can reprogram it. Um, okay, so this is, the advantage of this, as you said, is there's no wires. Now, I would imagine, but but you tell me, that a potential disadvantage is it's not actually in the heart, so you probably have to use higher uh, energy levels to make it work. And then is it less, you know, slightly less reliable since it's, you're, you know, not, not right there. Is this more like external pads than an internal defibrillator or no? Yeah, in a way it, it kind of is. And you're right. You do have to use a higher energy and then it's further away from the heart. So if you have electric cautery, it's going to be more, more vulnerable to, to interference and, and, uh, inappropriate shocks. Um, and another disadvantage, since currently it's still a standalone system, it can provide anti-tachycardia pacing, which a lot of, it's kind of more an advanced topic, but a lot of pacemaker ICD systems, instead of shocking right away, they can do anti-tachycardia pacing, which is supposed to be a lot better on the myocardium. Um, if you can pace someone out of an arrhythmia, it's a lot better on the heart than, than defibrillating at a, at a higher dose. Um, and this the other cannot thing, do that because it's not a pacemaker. Correct. It's not uh, connected to one yet. Um, and also, if it does defibrillate, it can, you know, a lot of times after a defibrillation, the rhythm will be bradycardic and the transvenous system will pace for the bradycardia. But this uh, subcutaneous ICD, it can do that, but only for, I think, 30 or 60 seconds. It can only do that for, for about a minute. So those are two disadvantages. Um, but um, there is a system being developed. Uh, by the way, the only, there's only one SICD, and that's by Boston Scientific, and it's called the, uh, the Emblem. Is that right? Yeah, Emblem MRI, which, of course, the name tells you that it's MRI compatible. Um, but they are actually working on a system where their, their Emblem SICD will communicate with um, a... Uh, um, pacemaker system that they're developing. So we may see the resolution of some of these issues when that comes about. You, you, the fact that you mentioned MRI, it makes me want to just double check with you guys about the micra and the wireless CRT. Are those things MRI compatible? I know for sure that the micra is. Um, for the YCRT, I, I believe that is too. Um, yeah. yeah, I see Mike giving the thumbs up there. So it sounds like they are good. Okay, that's important. Yeah, they all are okay, so, they all MRI compatible, especially the uh, 
the uh, YCRT, you, know, you put an electrode in the LV. Right. So they made it 100% iron compatible because dislodgement can lead to server MOI. Yeah. Yes, that would be a major issue. Yeah. <laughs> These days, it's it's hard to imagine that anything would be made, any implantable device would not be made to be MRI compatible these days, but you never know. So I'm glad glad we've established that. Um, okay, so Tommy, uh, we've got this uh, ICD, the subcutaneous ICD. It's uh, Let's get back to the potential issue of it being more, se- it's closer to the surface, it's more sensitive to interference. So um, as Mike said earlier, it's, you know, kind of sensing the whole left um, uh, hemithorax. So you have to be really careful with um, maybe even with electrocautery below the umbilicus, right? Correct. Correct. So is the recommendation that if someone has one of these really, and then they're going to electrocautery is going to be used, you should get this thing reprogrammed really no matter where the electrocautery is. Yeah. I think in general, that's, that's the safest bet and make sure you put pads on them once you uh once you disable it okay and let's just say that somebody has one of these you get it disabled you put pads on and they do require a shock from your pads is there any potential damage to the device from that shock there there could be damage for sure and you need to get it interrogated afterwards but you want to try to make sure you don't put the pads directly over over the device as well Okay. Which is so, the same as a, a normal transvenous pace, pacemaker. You don't want the pads directly over the generator. Right. And regardless, you want to get it interrogated at, at the end to make sure it's still working correctly. Okay. Um, anything else from a um, uh, kind of perioperative consideration perspective for the SICD that we didn't hit? So one, uh, one other thing that um, I, I think actually there was an article that I don't remember if we include in our manuscript where there was a bystander, a patient of an SICD uh, bystander was helping with CPR. The SICD, had, you know, sensed and detected uh, VF. It delivered 80 joules and um, it, it hit the bystander. So uh-huh. for us in the operating room, if you have a patient with SICD and you're going to leave it on for shock therapies in the OR setting, you have to, for us anesthesiologists, we have to protect all the other um, stakeholders. So if a nurse, quote unquote, is not, or any of us is not wearing a glove per se, and you touch the patient or they are prepping the patient and the device senses um, things that there is, you know, ventricular fibrillation and it delivers that 80 joule, you may get, you may feel it. And that may not be a good uh, time to get shocked when you're the only one on call middle of the night. So, so if, so if you're going to leave the SICD on for shock therapies in the OR, like Tommy was saying, put a magnet on to disable it. When there's a true arrhythmia that you, you know, think needs therapy, when you take the magnet on, the device would detect it and shock the patient. Okay. And um, another consideration is certain drugs that we use, like, you know, myoclonus from Atomidate or fasciculations from sucks, succinylcholine. Obviously, the device may think that these are ventricular arrhythmias and you may mm. shock at the same time. So just... If you're going to leave it on, just um, try and suspend it with a magnet in place. Uh, listen to make sure it beeps, but depending on the BMI of your patient, it may not be audible. You may have to use a stethoscope to really hear the beeping, uh, okay. but make sure it really has beeped. And when he beeps, as you know, Tommy said, 
the magnet has to stay exactly in the location where it suspended the shock therapy. So if it beeps and the magnet falls off and you put it back again, listen again. But because it's in the lateral aspect, we 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 wrote that it's recommend we recommended that maybe put an eye band, put a tegaderm, something to really keep it the magnet in place so you don't potentially get um, an inappropriate shock, which may be potentially um, dangerous to both the patient and, you know, the other uh, operating room personnel. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, great. Thank you, Mike. And Mike, let me stay with you because I want to now ask you if there's anything you want to say to kind of wrap up. And then I'm also curious to hear from you about what's coming down the pike. We've heard some some interesting stuff from both Joe and Tommy that we may see uh, some um, combinations with the wireless uh, or with the SICD and a pacemaker. Uh, are there other things that you know of that are in the works or that we should keep our eye out for? Yeah, so uh, uh, obviously, I mean, it was very, Tom and um, Joe did a phenomenal job talking about the functionalities of these new devices. One of the problems that we encounter is these are all made by different companies and they truly do not communicate with each other. So uh, Medtronic, you know, makes, you know, the Micros, um, EBR makes the YCRT, Boston makes the SICD. Um, and you, we're seeing combinations of all these devices uh, in the EP world. So there may be a patient that comes in and just needs a micro for pacing, but the ejection fraction is normal. And then two, three years later, because of RV pacing, now they develop, you know, um, dyssynchrony mediated heart failure with an EF of maybe 30%. And now that you add an SICD, you know, for defibrillation uh, therapy, the problem is the micro does not communicate with the SICD. So this type of modular therapy is being done. And there's also in a report of the YCRT being combined with the micro. So it just paces off of that. But um, so Boston Scientific is currently making um, the Empower Leadless Pacing System. And the rationale is to basically do the job that the micro does and then communicate with the uh, SICD for defibrillation. Another functionality that they've provided in the, um, the Empower is the ability to provide antitarcardia pacing. Because as Tommy said, delivering eight joules for any ventricular arrhythmia is too much because you're causing myocardial uh, damage with all that energy. So if you have a leadless pacer that provides bradycardia, can sense ventricular tachycardia, which um, may either self-terminate or maybe terminate it with anti-tachycardia pacing, when the empower is not able to provide that, then it would tell the SICD, I need a bigger shock energy uh, to rescue the patient. And then post um, defibrillation, bradycardia is routine, it's very you know common. Currently, the SICD will pace you for maybe a minute and then it, it stops because it's pacing you with 80 juice and it wants to preserve energy. However, when you add it to the Empower, now the Empower can provide longer-term bradycardia pacing. So modular therapy is here to stay. Um, all the other companies are also working in this space. So Medtronic is actually doing an, uh, it's got an extra vascular defibrillator, which is going to be actually substernal. Now you're reducing the impedance. So the extravascular defibrillator would use lesser energy than uh, the Boston Scientific uh, SICD, but it would also have the potential to communicate with the uh, 
the micro. So you have bradycardia patient and defibrillation. So there is a lot coming in this space. Uh, the technology is rapidly you know, evolving. Um, and we will be seeing them. We'll be seeing these patients routinely because younger patients do not, you know, if anybody that has been a lead extraction, uh, you damage valves, you occlude central vessels, the devices may need to be changed frequently, cardiac perforation, um, and especially with cardiac resynchronization therapy, needing three leads in a patient with the potential of not getting true efficacy. And even coronary sinus lead impede blood flow out of the coronary sinus, which obviously impacts negatively coronary perfusion. So there is a lot coming in this space uh, from this standpoint of more, you know, what you know, a lot of cardiologists term you know, modular therapy. And one last point is patients with left ventricular assist devices uh, frequently, obviously they have heart failure, they are prone to arrhythmias, they have transvenous devices routinely. A lot of centers, including ours, are now adding the SICD to LVAD patients so you can mitigate the transvenous infection risk that may potentially infect an LVAD. So we, we from the anesthesia standpoint, we have to be ready for this evolution. It does move so fast. Just when you think you've mastered one of them, a new one comes because <laughs> the micro came and before we knew what was happening, micro AV came. And now yep. what CRT is, you know, being accelerated. And so we, we can't wait for quote unquote true guidelines. We just need um, podcasts such as yours. Uh, we really appreciate what you're doing in this space so we can share this knowledge with others. And then we can also grow, you know, together to make, obviously to improve patient care globally. Yeah, no, I absolutely totally agree. And we'll, we'll have to do a follow-up episode uh, when the next version comes out, because I'm sure it won't be long. Um, and, and we absolutely should. Um, all right. So, uh, you know, I think in summary, right, there's there are new technologies. They're happening more and more. It sounds like there's reasonable data that they're, you know, at least as safe, if not better in some ways. Obviously, for example, you're not dealing with a lot. You don't have any of the transvenous complications around obstruction of vessels and, you know, uh, potential infection. So you, you actually are better in some ways. Um, there are some limitations. We talked about those. But because these have some advantages, we're going to be seeing them more and more. And so anesthesiologists are going to need to know how to deal with them. And there are some major differences like the fact that the uh, micro doesn't respond to a magnet, right? I mean, that's just one obvious example that if you didn't know, you could really be in trouble. Um, all right. Well, anything else, Joe, Tommy, or Mike, that you want to uh, bring up uh, before we move on? I don't think so. No, thanks. All right. I think this has been fantastic. So let's turn to the portion of the show where we do random recommendations. I left it up to you guys, whether you wanted to each do your own or whether you wanted to have a joint recommendation and you have kept me uh, in the dark. So it's going to be a surprise for me. But before we get to you guys, let me bring in an audience shout out. Laura Cochran wrote in to say that she actually has been working for a new publication. It's called Neo.Life. It covers the emerging neobiological revolution, everything from gene editing to the future of food and all kinds of interesting stuff. And she recommended an article they had written that I checked out. And it was really interesting. It was about alarm fatigue in the ICU. We'll put the link in the show notes, but some really interesting thoughts. And for example, they talk about kind of the ICU monitors of the future, which would be one monitor that records everything, heart rate, blood pressure, pulse ox, and it all filters into one computer together so that rather than one individual thing being off, in other words, you know, if the patient appears to have V-fib, but they have a totally normal blood pressure, then the thing wouldn't alarm because there's no way they're in V-fib with a blood pressure 
of 120 over 80. And so it would integrate all of the different signals and then decide whether there needs to be an alarm and help eliminate some of the alarm fatigue by eliminating the quantity of false positive alarms. So pretty interesting. And uh, check out that article from Neo.life. All right, gentlemen, back to you. What did you decide? I mean, I have my own. Tommy, go first. <laughs> let's let's hear. I love it. Uh, our audience will love to hear what each of you recommend. What do you have to shout out for them? You wanted a, a book, right? And uh, could be a book, a movie, oh, a recipe, uh, yeah. whatever you want. I mean, probably my favorite show is The Office. Like, if I'm having a bad day, I'll pull up uh, Dwight versus Jim clips, and that always puts me in a good mood. Nice. <laughs> All the pranks and stuff. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Love it. Uh, Great recommendation. Well, Joe or uh, Mike? Uh, I'm in um, Ohio with my colleagues here, and it's, it's been a cold <laughs> winter. And um, I'm thinking about where our, uh, I, before I was here, I lived in Pittsburgh. And it's not really a big city. It's not a New York City. For people who are uh, international, uh, you may not think to visit Pittsburgh, but I, I would um, encourage anyone, if you're in the neighborhood or driving by, stop in Pittsburgh in the summertime and rent a kayak. And there are three big uh, rivers in Pittsburgh, and it's real um, introductory kayak if you've never done it before. It's a real peaceful way to uh, enjoy a spring or summer day. So, um, you, you know, as this winter season ends, I would, uh, if you're by Pittsburgh, stop there and rent a kayak and check out the views on the, on the uh, three rivers. That's awesome. Thanks, Joe. That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, Mike, how about you? Well, I'm not as exciting as these guys. I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of like a boring guy. But I was just hoping. I just um, wanted to get more of a reach, uh, like a broader audience, uh, through your you know your podcast and uh, try to get the our societies to get you know we we assembled six centers, but five or six, I guess. But even though we reviewed the literature and then basically selected, you know, Joe, and I would say this, Joe and Tommy were phenomenal in getting this article done. Uh, as an attendant, you know, I get some credit, but I, I would say they were phenomenal getting this done. Sure. But it's still, like, globally, if any anesthesiologist is going to care for a patient with, quote-unquote, a cardiac rhythm monitoring device, they're going to pull our guidelines. And it just is not you know, for politically, to be politically correct, I think it's not comprehensive enough when probably 30% of the devices in that space were not, quote unquote, directly addressed. So if we can find a way for Heart Rhythm Society, Society of Cardiovascular Anesthesiologists and the ASA uh, to just get a group together, it's not always going to be randomized trials because how do you even design such a trial? <laughs> a patient has a micro. I was going to say, for you, we're going to turn it off. For you, we're going to leave it on. It's, we just need some guidance, and it has to be a large volume because it's in Europe, the YCRT is approved. So they're using it you know, commercially. We're not here. You know. um, so we just have to get a broader mass, you know, get a critical mass of anesthesiologists to just create a document, just, you know, even. Our transvenous documents were not based on randomized trials. It was just based on expert opinions, people with a lot of experience in this space. So if you can 
make this happen. It would help a lot of patients because there's nothing worse than being on call middle of the night and routinely you're trying to figure out, oh, you know, you know that a pulse generator pocket should be in the, you know, the left infracavicular space. Now you look, it's not there. Maybe they may have a micro, they may have a YCRT and losing, you know, uh, the number one drive of the patient's functionality, which is the heart, I think can be detrimental. So uh, we got to get this done. Yeah, I love it. So Mike's random recommendation is to recommend <laughs> that people get their act together and do better guidelines. And I'll tell you, not only I'll actually I, I love it and I agree with you, Mike, and I'll say, you know, not only do we need more guidelines, but when we have them, we need them to be easier to digest quickly. In other words, half the time I feel like you pull up one of these guidelines and you're just trying to find the answer to a simple question like, what should I do with this patient? Do they or do they not need further cardiac workup before surgery? And there's no easy summary page where you can just go and say, oh, there it is. There's no infographic. There's nothing easy. You have to read through and it's talking about all the different levels of evidence and it's talking about, you know, what this and, <laughs> and it's almost impossible to find the actual recommendations, right? So I would say to these societies, not only do more, but when you do them, make it something with a very straightforward summary page that tells practitioners Here's what to do in, in, in a given situation. You're, you're 100% correct. And, and one of the authors that was, did a phenomenal job in our paper with creating such a table, Dr. Nasser Hussein, he's our chief resident. We didn't have enough space for him here, so we have to still give him a shout out. But he created a table of all the functionalities of the micro, micro CRT, the whole, all the devices that we discussed in our article. So in the middle of the night, if you just pick up our article and you just get to that one page, you can at least manage the patient and then read the whole document, you know, later on. So yep. NASA did a great job. That is awesome. All right. Well, love the recommendation. And mine, uh, on a totally different note, uh, listeners will know that I'm a fantasy novel fanatic and I was looking for something new. I decided not to read Brandon Sanderson's new book because I want to wait till that series, the um, Stormlight Archives, is done before I read another one and then have to wait for years for the next. So I was looking for something and I just was Googling and reading various um, Reddit pages to try to figure out. And somebody, actually several people recommended the Riria, which is spelled R-I-Y-R-I-A, the Riria Revelations by Michael J. Sullivan. And I'll tell you, I am uh, about two thirds of the way through. Um, it's fantastic. There's three books, but each one is actually made up of two kind of sub books. The backstory is fascinating. He actually initially wrote these, I think, for his son and tried to get them published and kind of no one was interested in publishing them. So he self-published them because his son refused to read them if they were just like dad's printed out manuscript. He said, I'm only reading it if it looks like a real book. So his dad like self-published them or the, the author self-published them in a, so that it would look like a real book gave him to his son and then also kind of gave him around and, and they caught on fire. He ended up selling like tens of thousands of copies. And then of course, all of a sudden 
publishing houses took interest. And he's now a, a really well-regarded, famous fantasy author uh, who's who's made it big uh, because and they're they're incredibly entertaining, well done. Um, so if you're into that kind of book, if, if you like Game of Thrones, you like Brandon Sanderson stuff, I think you will like Michael J. Sullivan's stuff and start with the Reary of Revelations. All right, guys, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank much. you so much. This we fun. appreciate it. All right. That was fantastic. I know it was a long one, but I think a really great one. A lot of really good stuff in there. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com. You can leave a comment and others can learn from what you have to say. If you want to join the conversation on Twitter, I'm at Jay Walpaw and we're at Rack Podcast. And of course, you can also join the Facebook group. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasting, leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. And even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make individual donations anytime you want by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking for Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thanks so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, our tech lead, to April Liu, who is our social media manager, and Dr. Kimmy Akash Cooley, who helps out with some of the show notes. Big thanks to Dr. Dennis Quo, who composed our original ACRAG music, and his website is studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today for the ACRAG podcast and Drs. S.N. Doe, Cody, and Grawl. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.